Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Murray McLehose was inaugurated as Governor of Hong Kong in November 1971 and became Hong Kong's longest-serving governor, holding his position until May 1982, a decade that saw huge development in Hong Kong. Under his tenure, compulsory education was extended by three years, public housing was increased dramatically and country parks were introduced. Just three of the changes that occurred. In this week's programme, author and China analyst Mark O'Neill joins me to talk about some of Murray McLehose's reforms, which included the introduction of district councils and the Independent Commission Against Corruption, or ICAC. This is a broad overview of his life and work. We don't get to the new towns or the mass transit railway, among others, but it gives an impression of his career, what this diplomat, left-leaning governor, carried out during his time here. Samari McLehose was the governor of Hong Kong for the longest period of any governor. That's 10 years and six months. He was a very tall man, six foot four. He had an imposing presence. And his manner was different to previous governors in that he liked to walk on the streets. He walked from his office to Legco. He didn't take the official car. He liked to talk to ordinary people. And, of course, he was very much higher than... <laughs> nearly all the Hong Kong people, but he liked to engage with them. So I think this was part of his leadership role that he saw for himself. In other words, not just to be the head of the government, but be somebody who was seen interacting with people and seen as interacting with the government. Now, one of his features was he greatly enlarged the consultation between the government and the population, not democracy, but consultation. So he greatly expanded all these advisory boards and encourage people to say what they wanted. So I think this is one of the reasons why he was popular, because Hong Kong people felt they could speak. And when I speak to my mother-in-law, who's 90, I ask her who the Hong Kong governors were, and she can't remember. But the one she does remember is Mang Lai Ho, mainly because of the education. He extended the education from six to nine years compulsory. And she said this is critical for Hong Kong children because the vast majority were children of refugees. They had no money. They couldn't go to private schools. So their only hope of education was government free education. And he extended that. So she said this was a contribution to Hong Kong that is inestimable. He extends that in 1971. Mm. So, I mean, that follows on, and we'll, we'll be looking at uh, his governorship uh, a bit later on in the programme, but that, of course, follows on four years after the, the riots in 67. So I think the government was under pressure uh, somewhat to improve the lot of, of the Hong Kong people, and uh, extending education and public housing was, mm. was another. But uh, let's go back to who was Sir Murray McLehose, and where did he come from? Well, he was the son of a family in Glasgow. He was born in October 1917. He attended rugby school and then Balliol College in Oxford. So rugby was a, is a private... Private. I mean, it's an elite British school. Yeah. So if you go to rugby and you go to Balliol College, Oxford, you're on the escalator into the British elite. So in 1939, when he's 22, he joins the colonial service and goes to Malaya. Now, now Malaysia, but then Malaya. And in World War II, he worked in the British consulates in Xiamen and Fuzhou in China. And so I read, he trained Chinese guerrillas mm. to carry out sabotage against Japanese from behind the lines. So how did he have that knowledge? Well, 
you see, he had a very special position. Japan had occupied most of the east coast of China. But at that moment, Britain wasn't at war with Japan. So he, he could still be there. So the British government saw that there would be a war with Japan and it was supporting China in the war with Japan. So he was in a very excellent position to assist Chinese people in the war against Japan because of the privilege of being inside the Japanese area, but he was a free man. Now he's been described as a Sinologist, so he, he studied Chinese? I don't read that in his uh, biography, but as I say, he worked in Xiamen and Fuzhou, and then after the war, he was the acting consul general in Hankou in central China, which meant that he saw the Chinese Civil War unfolding in front of him. So he had an insider's view as to what was going on between the communists and the Kuomintang. So all this gives him an excellent preparation for working in the future in Hong Kong and to understand the ideologies of the communists and how they would behave and how they would regard 1997. And he had an excellent background for this. I mean, like Edward Yude, who follows him, he's actually been in the region. I mean, uh, any number of other governors who come to Hong Kong, they really haven't got any knowledge about China, whereas MacLehose and then Yude, I mean, they really are experienced China hands in some ways. Well, Yude is even better because mm. Yude has studied Chinese. He's worked in the embassy in Beijing, so he, he knows it even better. So this is a very important part of MacLehose's growing up and education. And he calls the Chinese world the thrill of that different world because it's obviously completely different from the world he's been used to in Britain and Southeast Asia. So then he's moved from China he, and he joins the diplomatic service in Europe. And now is the period of the Marshall, Marshall Plan and America is providing a lot of aid to re reconstruct Europe. So he works in Prague and he works in Paris as a commercial counsellor. So he's then on the front row of this historic change that is going on in Europe. And of course, Prague is in Czechoslovakia, which belongs to the Soviet bloc. So he sees also the division of Europe between the Soviet and the Western side. And then 1959, he's back in Hong Kong and he's political advisor to Sir Robert Black, the Hong Kong governor. So this again is a very good position for him to be in because he, he's interacting between the Hong Kong government, between the British government, and also, of course, observing what's going on in China. So this improves further his knowledge and understanding of mainland China. So as a political advisor to Sir Robert Black, the Hong Kong governor, between 1959 and 1963, what sort of political advice would he have been giving or what, what sort of issues at the time would he have been involved in? Well, at that time, you know, China was completely cut off from the outside world. So there was no interaction between the Hong Kong government and the Chinese government. But of course, nobody knew what the Chinese government wanted to do. I mean, did, did China want to take Hong Kong back? I mean, nobody knew. So I think his job would have been to liaise very closely with the Foreign Office in London, to try to understand as best he could as to what's going on in mainland China, which is extremely difficult. And I think he would not even have been able to have contacts in Hong Kong with representatives of the Chinese government, like the Xinhua News Agency or big Chinese companies. I, I think that wasn't available. So that makes the job of trying to understand China mm. much, much more, more difficult. And he would have to rely on people like Father Ladani, the Hungarian priest who produced this China <laughs> news analysis, which was the best anybody could do at that time. 
but I think for for Maclehose, it would have been a very interesting assignment. I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, he then goes on as principal private secretary to two Labour foreign secretaries, and Maclehose is, is in fact, Labour Party. I, I always think of, because it's colonial and Hong Kong governors, I, I, for some reason in my head, I've got this idea, usually, that they're going to be the Tory, the Conservative end. Mm-hmm. But, that you know, there's no rhyme or reason for my thinking that. But somehow with Maclehose, it does, perhaps it fits in then that he has this kind of Labour Party left-leaning attitude that fits in with his some of his social welfare later on. Well, I mean, these two foreign secretaries would have chosen him because mm. he was a member of the Labour Party. So I think it's critical to understand what happened in Hong Kong later because, as you say, Education and social welfare are the the two most important things he did here. So when he arrived here, he had a different orientation to most governors. And uh, when he came and he saw the squatter huts and he saw the poor condition in which thousands of people lived, and he was very upset about it. And he said, we've got to do something. Well, these squatter huts and these poor housing existed for years before, but the leading government officials didn't find it necessary to do anything. So, yeah, I think this is very important. Now, he nearly, at this point, destroys his own career. Yes, he he leaves a confidential document in a bank and he goes back to the office and the document is (laughs) is about communication between... British government, the American government on Vietnam War yes. policy. I mean, it couldn't have been more confidential. <laughs> but he was very lucky. I mean, the bank employee could have put it in his, his yeah. pocket, run off to one of the newspapers and sold it for thousands of pounds for a scoop. But luckily, one of my closest colleagues went back oh. and picked the, the document up so nobody read it. So it would have been a dismissal offence but first, nobody saw it other than people within the government. And secondly, he was a very eminent official. His bosses greatly liked him. So just, just a bit forgetful. Well, just I mean, we all make mistakes. and You know, probably in the bank, he had a bank book. He maybe had a passport. He was carrying lots of money. I mean, he was doing a lot of things at the same time. So perhaps he just put the document on the desk and f- forgot about it. He's then off to, as ambassador in Saigon during the Vietnam War, and that's, uh, he's there as ambassador between 1967 and 1969. So what was his role there? Well, I mean, th- this again, it's just like it was in Europe after World War II. I mean, he's in the centre of the action. And, of course, the question for Britain is, do we take part in the war? How much do we support America? What do we think is going to happen? What is American public opinion saying about the war? I mean, there are so many a- aspects to this. And Britain is the closest ally of the United States. So McLehose would have seen more of the American diplomats and military officials than any other ambassador. So, I mean, it is absolutely a hot seat. Now, I don't know whether it was also dangerous. I, I, I think at that stage in the war, Saigon was pretty safe. I don't, I don't think there were Viet Cong operating within the city. But certainly if he went out of the city and, and went to frontline areas, then that would have been a risk. So, again, a very remarkable assignment. So if we go now on to the period where he is governor of Hong Kong, so he's governor here from 19, November 1971 to May 1982. November 1971, what kind of Hong Kong is he coming into? Well, the timing is lucky for him, actually, because the Hong Kong economy is, is really being to pick up. Hong Kong's become an industrial powerhouse. 
It's starting to export large amounts of products around the world. The government revenue is greatly increasing. As we say, China is cut off from the rest of the world. So China is not a manufacturing exporter at all. So Hong Kong has taken over this function of China. So we say that MacLeod is a great reformer, which he is, but it was only being possible because the conditions here were suitable. In other words, there was enough money coming into the government's revenues that he could embark on these very ambitious programs. So, so what was the population at that point? think about four million. I think the other thing we have to say is when he came and he saw the conditions in which thousands of people lived, yeah, he was very dissatisfied with it. And he started this enormous public housing scheme. It was, he announced it as a 10-year scheme, but actually it's continuing until now. So as I understand, we have at the moment more than 40% of the population living in government subsidised housing. But that wasn't the first public housing. I mean, we'd had public housing prior to that. Yeah, but he greatly expanded it. And I think it's one of the great strengths of Hong Kong until now. And probably the reason why Hong Kong has been a socially stable place, because the poorest people have, at minimum, an apartment on which they pay a very low rent. But that's also because they can't afford to own a house. Yes, but imagine there wasn't this scheme, and they were having to rent privately then there's no guarantee that the rent is controlled and the conditions they live in are also problematic. So some of my wife's relatives lived in these estates and I used to visit them. And of course it's spartan and the space is, is small, but it's clean, it's well ventilated, it's well protected. There are security guards on the door. All the basic facilities are, are available. And of course, if your son and daughter do very well at school, and go and get a nice job in HSBC and become lawyers and accountants, then you move out into a nice private apartment. But it's a kind of basis, and many countries in the world do not have this basis. Mm. So I, I think this was a very big contribution he made. And you needed someone like him to make such a big commitment. I mean, most administrators wouldn't want to commit to a large program. Who was paying for it? Well, the, the, the Hong Kong government paid it for it. It was the Hong Kong. It wouldn't yes. have been coming in in any way from Britain. Yeah. So, of course, you could only do that because the Hong Kong economy was doing very mm. well and land sales were improving. You know, the Hong Kong government has always relied mostly on money from land sales to fund its expenditure. Yeah, but you needed a man of his chutzpah, you know, and his mm. energy to embark on, on such a scheme. So that was public housing. What about education? His predecessor did start on... So David Trench, yeah. ...started on free compulsory education. But what he did was he extended it to nine years. So in 1971, if I was a child in Hong Kong, to what age would I have been educated? You'd have six years free education. Till I was about 11 years old. Mm. Mm -hmm. So and primary. Primary. So he extended for three for three more years. It's free. So again, it's a huge expenditure. You've got to build more schools. You've got to hire teachers. You've got to equip the schools. And of course, Hong Kong gets a return because you end up with a much more qualified and better educated workforce. And the result is what we see now, which is that Hong Kong isn't a manufacturing centre anymore. It's a service centre. And what it is, it's banks, insurance companies... Um, lawyers, accountants, specialists of all sorts, providing services to companies in China and companies in Asia. And this requires a very high level of education. And that's one outcome of what MacLeod started. 
I mean, at the time when he's here in the 1970s, so you'd have had a lot of these small factories almost set up in um, sometimes those also in housing estates. You'd have also had steelworks or things like that. It's a very different manufacturing base. It's, it's kind of hard to think of Hong Kong in those terms sometimes decades on. So education is then improved for another three years. So you're, you're basically 14 mm. uh, when you leave school. What else was done under his tenure? I mean, I know he's a keen hiker. So we have the 100-kilometre Macklehose Trail, but uh, was he also involved in country parks? Oh, yes. I mean, this is, again, astonishing. I mean, he said 40% of the land area be designated as country parks. How many countries in the world have 40% of the land area designated as country parks? So I think it started because he himself loved hiking. So he knew rural Hong Kong very well. That's the, f the first point. The second point is people in Hong Kong live in very crowded space. Restaurants are crowded, buses are crowded, subways crowded, everything's crowded. So you must provide them with an alternative. So nowadays, Hong Kong people go to the country parks in, in very large numbers. They take their families, they go with friends. It's very much now part of the culture. In the beginning, I would say Maclos was probably walking on his own or just with <laughs> a few of his mates from the office. So this was a very remarkable thing to do. And I think today in Hong Kong, I think especially the young people who won't know about Maclos, but everyone will know about the trail because people do it all the time. And also, I think with the country parks, he's uh, managed to maintain some of Hong Kong's biodiversity, you know, just for the, for the uh, flora and fauna there. Now, when he arrives as governor in 1971... How many official languages did we have here? Well, this is another great change because when he came, English was the only official language. English. So in LegCo or in official documents, uh, dealings with the government, um, English was the only official language. And of course, this is completely unfair to the vast majority of the population. So if you didn't speak English or you didn't speak English well enough, of, of course, you can completely handicapped. Again, I think it's because of MacLehose's experience in the past. He was a diplomat rather than a colonial administrator, and he saw how unjust this was. So in 1974, Chinese was declared an official language. And of course, you don't change it overnight. So the legal system and, and official documents, I mean, it takes a long time for the change. But I think the symbolism is very, very important. Mm. Chinese people, especially those who have not been educated in English in one of these expensive private schools, feel that their language is the, the equal of English, as it should be. And again, someone has to make the decision. I'm sure many people opposed it. I'm sure many people in the government said to Macklehose, this is useless, it'll cost lots and lots of money, who's going to do all the translation, you know. But you need someone like Macklehose to make the decision and put the gavel down on the table. When he comes in 1971, you've got a very corrupt police force, any number of other um, officials in, you know, probably fire services and any, any kind of service like that. I mean, you had to grease the palm before they showed up. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the stories I have from my mother-in-law on this are, are legion, you know. If your apartment's on fire, you're in the fire station and they say, mo chin, mo soi, no money, no water. So you have to Pay for, I mean, their job is to put out fires, but you have to pay them. She said even in, in, in the hospital, if you've got an elderly relative in the hospital who requires a lot of care, not just the nurse, but the attendant would ask for some payment to, to you know, clean your elderly relative and clean the bed and so forth. So it was uh, endemic. It was that was, due to people didn't earn very much? Well, in part because the public 
officials were paid very little. And it becomes sort of endemic. It's sort of within the system. So as in many countries in the world, corruption is endemic, but people accept it because it's part of the cost. So everybody knew this, and of course government officials knew this too, but it's such a big issue. And the most corrupt is the police. Now, the governments rely on the police to keep public order, so taking it on is such an enormous challenge that, yeah, officials just kick, kick it down the line, leave it for the next man. Oh, yes. So I think the, the, the case of Godber is the, is the spark. So 1974, because 73, 74, yeah. He is, he is a, an expat policeman. He makes 4.3 million Hong Kong dollars from kickbacks. He puts this money offshore. And he's already under investigation by the anti-corruption body of the police. So they know he's on the take. But he's able, with his airport police card, mm. to get through the immigration at the airport and get on a plane and go to the UK. So when this news is reported in Hong Kong, all the Chinese say, well, there you are. Even the expat policemen are on the take and they can get away. And the government doesn't stop them. So how can we have any confidence in this government? So... Again, Maclehose makes the big decision. Someone has to make the big decision and say we're going to do something. So he sets up ICAC in February 1974, and he chooses Sir Jack Cater to head it. And as I understand, Cater was a very outstanding official, not at all corrupt, and with the determination to take on this mission. And then he hires as the head of the operations a man called John Prendergast, and he's one of the top secret agents in the British system. And he'd already been here in the Cultural Revolution. He was the head of the special branch. And he'd retired, actually. But Maclehose was able to persuade him to come out of retirement and come here and be the head of operations. So he and Cater had a very difficult job because the people with the expertise to investigate corruption, of course, are in the police force. So you've got, you've got to get the people to leave the police force, come and work for the ICAC, and then they're going to be investigating their former colleagues and the people they worked with, and that's extremely difficult. And, of course, the police was extremely hostile to this new organisation and didn't cooperate and didn't want it to succeed. And the public also is very sceptical because corruption's been going on for so long. So Cater and Prendergast have an extremely difficult job to get this new organisation off and running. So they make some spectacular operations. They arrest dozens of policemen. And then in October 1977, we have this enormous demonstration by the police against the ICAC. And a hundred of them come in and sack the ICAC headquarter office. And they steal the files and they attack the staff. And this is really a critical moment for McLehose. What's he going to do? So he is afraid that the police will mutiny. And if the police mutiny, of course, Hong Kong has no public order. So his only alternative would have been to ask the British garrison here to take over the public order. And he very much didn't want that because, of course, they were not trained for that and they don't have the local knowledge and so forth. And as I understand, he canvassed among the police leaders and asked them. And he got different opinions. And some said there will be mutiny. Others said there won't be mutiny, that these demonstrators don't represent the whole of the police. But he erred on the side of caution and he offered a, an amnesty for offences committed before January 1977, except for the most senior ones. And of course this was a, a major concession by him. But 
I mean, he did it to keep the police on side, or keep the majority of the police on side, and keep the public order in Hong Kong. So it was it was a setback, but in the event, it turned out not to be a major setback. So ICAC did continue operating and did arrest more people, and gradually it it won the confidence of the, of of the public. So I think we we should say he's this is one of his other enormous contributions to Hong Kong. We're describing earlier how he was involved in China right at the outset of his career. He's, he's there during the Civil War and then returned to Europe to help with the Marshall Plan. So he's a diplomat governor when he comes here in 1971. So his early experience of China and Hong Kong is at a time when Hong Kong and China aren't communicating at all. By the time he's governor, of course, it's going to be um, in the lead up to some of the negotiations. So he, in fact, meets with Deng Xiaoping in March 1979. Well, let's just back up a little bit. I mean, one of the things he did when he arrived was to find out how to improve relations with China. Well, he couldn't in the beginning because we're in the Cultural Revolution, so there's no communication at all. Then Chairman Mao dies, and he signs the <laughs> condolence book for Chairman Mao, which is quite a remarkable thing to do. And then he starts to have contact with the Xinhua news agency chief, who's the unofficial representative of China here. So, you know, even before, he's keen to get the lines of communication opening with, with China. And of course, 1997 is not very long away. So he's thinking, we've got to pay attention to this question. So yes, he goes to Beijing in March 1979. And he's the first governor of Hong Kong to go to Beijing. I mean, it's really extraordinary. I mean, governors have been here since 1841. And they've never been to meet Chinese leaders in their capital. So the issue that he wants to raise with the Chinese leaders is about the leases in 1997, because the investors are asking him, if I sign a lease on a new, new territory's property, what happens in 1997? Because we're now 18 years ahead. So people want a security beyond 1997. So his intention is not to raise the big issue at once. He wants to, to ask China, can we have a kind of wording which enables us to offer leases beyond 1997, but we don't need to say what the constitutional arrangements are. In other words, the lease will say this lease will run on for the 10 years or for 20 years, period. Oh, well, we don't say under which Yes, which is yeah. a very clever, sort yes. of practical yes. solution. So this is what he goes to Beijing with, with. This is what's in his mind. And this is what he wants to talk about, the Chinese side. So he was hoping to meet either the foreign ministry or the head of the Hong Kong Macau Affairs Office in Beijing <laughs> first, you know, to discuss these things with him, get a feel for the land, what do the highest leaders think. But unfortunately, <laughs> he gets to meet Deng Xiaoping first of all. And, uh, you know, Deng is a very uh, blunt guy. Deng went through the war with Japan. Deng went through the Civil War. Deng went through the Cultural Revolution. He was purged twice. I mean, he's a tough guy. I mean, questions of a lease, you know, adding a few years to the lease is not a matter which would interest Deng very much. Anyway, Deng tells him that we will take the sovereignty back. And of course, once Deng has said it, it can't be unsaid. Now, as I understand, that was not the unanimous position of everyone in the Chinese government at that time. People in the foreign ministry, for example, they were open to the idea of Britain continuing to administer Hong Kong, give the sovereignty back, but continue to manage Hong Kong. 
I don't know about other departments in the government, but I think the ones dealing with trade, finance, outside world would be more flexible. But Deng is vice premier. He's the strong man. So he says this. So that's the policy. It cannot then be undone. And Deng also says, set your minds at rest. Let the investors rest easy. Don't worry. So when Maclose comes back to Hong Kong, he does not say the yes. part about, Hong Kong, uh, about China taking it back. So it was the Ed Deng Xiaoping meeting, edited version. Edited version, yeah. And I, I think Maclos was quite correct. My thanks to author and China analyst Mark O'Neill, talking there on the life and career of former Governor Murray Maclehose. And as you can see, there's plenty of fodder for me to return to. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.